My name's Taylor again, Taylor Entz, and I'm the pastor here at Blessed Beyond Reckoning to be the pastor here at Sojourn Galleria. Just so glad to see all of you uh, and to worship with you this morning. <sighs> My soul has just been so blessed. I needed, I needed that. I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, I was listening to NPR, 88.7 FM, yesterday driving away from Chris's house, our worship leader. We some of us helped him a little bit. I, I scooted out way early. See ya. But I helped him a little bit with a move. He and, he and his wife, Lily, just moved yesterday and was driving, driving away from that move to something else. And I, my 88.7, my, my radio is almost always on the far end of the dial, either 88.7 NPR or 91.7. Up until July 15th, it's a, it was a classical station. And then they're off the air now, and I'm just so sad. I can't even, uh, so now it's just 88.7 pretty much, but I was listening and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is a sort of a, a quiz show that's on on Saturday mornings, and they were talking amongst other interesting and somewhat trivial things about, uh, cleverly as they always do, about dictators, <laughs> and they were having questions about, quiz questions about dictators, true things that each dictator would do, so they give you three Three, two of which they made up, and then one that was real. And the thing that they said about the dictators, and starting off, uh, grabbed my attention in particular. They said dictators make long speeches, tend to make long speeches because nobody's gonna, everyone's afraid to tell them to stop making them, you know, because they would just crush you if you said that's really boring. Please stop. Although they did say at one point, um, a translator, an hour and a half into somebody's speech, like Gaddafi or something like that. Just an Arabic translator just ran out of the room saying, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> and so every once in a while it happens. But most of the time, dictators think they just drone on and on. And I was like, well, pastors can uh, definitely fall prey to the same thing. I know I'm definitely not exempt. So on that note, note to self, I'm, I want you to know, congregation and dear visitors especially, I'm working on it. It is a problem. I'm, always, I'm working toward the 30-minute sermon uh, and on that note, I'm, I've dropped the, the, the last two points that I planned out that really relate to the latter text that Austin read, the end of the text, Job 42, Job's response to God's taking Job to the woodshed and saying, here I am, and Job just says, I shut my mouth, ashes on the head, I repent in dust and ashes. Um, we'll move those points to next week, so don't worry, they'll, they'll come back in the end. But uh, So it's a one-point sermon this morning. Uh, you know, it's funny that Austin said what he did about all Scripture is God-breathed. And indeed, uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16, we're told in particular that all Scripture, Old and New Testament, is the word that uh, Peter uses is theopneustos, God-breathed, literally, God-breathed. It's some, sometimes it's translated in an English translation as inspired, but inspired has the, carries the sense of it's breathed into. Man wrote it first, and then God made it his word. That's not, that's not the word that Peter uses. Peter uses the word theo, God, pneustos. It's onomatopoeic. Pneustos means breath, breath of God. All scripture is the very breath of God through men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what they did with their personalities, with their proclivities, but Holy Spirit, not inspired, but his very breath. And so all scriptures got breathed, but our pastor back in Scotland, we lived in Scotland for a while, he liked to say sometimes, but the red letters, uh, 
aren't any more God's breath than the black letters. And if you have a red letter Bible, you know that means that Jesus, sometimes in certain Bibles, his, whatever he said is in red. The rest of the Bible is in black. And sometimes we tend to think, oh, this is, the red letters are a little bit more. No, all of it is God's very breath, his very word to us through men. But I did put something in here about kind of what Austin said. It is nice after having preached through a large portion of the book of Job, where you have to weigh and sift things, kind of like when you're reading the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, and you kind of have to reverse everything that screw tape says so that it's true, because he's a devil, and so the enemy is actually God. And you're like, oh, enemy, oh, it's God. So it's the opposite of what you say. Sort of with when the friends are talking in Job, you kind of have to do that some, but yet some of what they say is true. Um, and then even when Job speaks, it's solid, it's substantial, it's good, and yet we saw him edging into pride last week, and you, you just have to weigh. So to get to the place, like Austin said, in chapter 38, all the way through 41, where it's just the undiluted, unfiltered, with a few squeaks from Job, word of God, is really nice. And it's ponderous um, and profound and, and heavy. Um, these words are a hammer, and my prayer is that they would break us to pieces only that the Lord might bind us and make us whole and more solid. Uh, this is not in the script, but uh, on that note, I remember reading, um, <laughs> I remember, I used, to, okay, confession. I, I owned a, the Encyclopedia of Modern Bodybuilding by uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Get to the chopper! Uh, back when I was in high school, and uh, highly recommend it if you work out, but I think it's still on the shelf somewhere. But in it, he talks at one point about breaking I don't think it was his femur, but it was a big bone in his leg that rendered him unable to work out for a while and compete as Mr. Universe, six-time champion. And so he took a big break, and he was babying it. After it got better, he was babying it in the weight room, and he wasn't putting as much weight on it as, as he would do. And his pastor, his pastor, oh, would that he had a pastor at that time in his life. Um, his doctor at one point said, look, you broke it, and when, when it heals correctly after a break, uh, when it's set and when it heals, it's stronger. After it's been broken and after it's been healed correctly, it's stronger than it was before you'd broken it. So go for it. And so I did. I went for it. And let me tell you, number six universe was right there. So no. And so it's, uh, it's, it's a gripping piece of prose if you ever want to dip, dip into that encyclopedia. But my point is, my point is, wow, this is what happens when I preach a one-point sermon. I just have all the freedom, <laughs> all the freedom. It's going to be the longest ever. No, it's not. Um, God only breaks us to bind us again and make us stronger in the end. And I think that's the point that I'm going to finish with. And that's why he comes at Job the way he comes at Job. To really, in 42, next week we'll see, to, to bring Job back even stronger. Not just to give him more kids and more wealth, but to make him stronger in all the intangible ways that we need that Chris was praying about in his beautiful prayer for sanctification. To be more, to look more, to act more, to feel more like, to speak more like our God, to be true, not tinny, but substantial and solid. That's why Christ died for us, and, and that's why God takes us to the woodshed. It's why he allows us to suffer, not because he hates us, because he loves us. So, this is, this is uh, last week or the week before we talked about God being in the dock, kind of Job kind of puts God in the witness stand and starts source, source to, start to accuse him and question him a bit. This is Job being put in the dock. Job is now in the witness stand as he ought to be, as we ought to be, and God is questioning him. Tell me, as Austin said, tell me if you know these things, if you know any of these things, if you can do any of these things, 
Let's go. Tell me. It's kind of a Bruce Almighty sort of sort of scene here. Um, there's a um, there's a book by a an Enlightenment a French Enlightenment thinker by the name of Voltaire called Candide, which I read in at university. And there's a character in in Candide. Uh, Vol- Voltaire was a famous, if not atheist, agnostic. And um, there's a character that is called Pangloss. And Pangloss is sort of, he's the comic relief. And he's the person that really Voltaire is saying, this is the most ridiculous part of religion. Don't be like this guy. And his name, he is what his name implies. He goes around saying, this is the best of all possible worlds. As the world is falling apart, the more suffering he sees, the more Pangloss says, this is the best of all possible worlds. It just has to be that way because God is and God is sovereign. So, um, Pangloss, pan meaning all, gloss meaning a gloss. He glosses over everything. That's not, we can tend to think as we read this perhaps, you know, Job has just gone through incredible suffering, and Job sort of connects his suffering to the suffering of all righteous men and women, suffering everywhere in every form, and says, look, if you don't care about me, you don't care about anyone, and you're not answering me, you're not going to answer anyone, and um, you're just glossing over. He doesn't, Job doesn't say this, but Voltaire did through the character Pangloss, um, and we can tend to think that this series of answers, in a sense, that God gives, where he doesn't really give Job the answers that even we have as to to why Job is suffering. He doesn't say, look, in a sense, this was a test to see if you really loved me, to sharpen your faith, um, to to put a book together that would encourage people in the depths of woe and suffering, um, so that people could see a man who stood when he had everything stripped away from him and said, I love God, I trust God, even though I don't understand not for what he gives, but for who he is. God didn't say any of that to Job. In this, in this section, as we saw, Job, God just takes Job to the woodshed and just says, who are you? Here's what I do. Think about that for a second and then tell me if you have an answer. Who are you to accuse me? We might think it's a gloss, um, but it's not. Tozer, I brought him up last week, A.W. Tozer, a 20th century, mid-20th century pastor and, and author, in the knowledge of the holy, he says this. He says, it's heartening to learn How many of God's mighty deeds were done in secret, away from the prying eyes of men or angels. When God created the heavens and the earth, darkness was upon the face of the deep. When the eternal Son became flesh, he was carried for a time in the darkness of the sweet virgin's womb. When he died for the life of the world, it was in the darkness seen by no one at the last. When he arose from the dead, it was, quote, very early in the morning. No one saw him rise. And here's the thing I want you to hear. It is as if God were saying, what I am is all that need matter to you. Isn't that what he told Moses at the bush? He gave him some reasons after Moses chomped at the bit for a while and said, no, send somebody else. No, 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 I'm not your guy. But really he just said, look, I am and I'm going to be with you. And that's all you need to know. What I am is all that need matter to you for there lie your hope and your peace. I will do what I will do. And that we really hear in this text. And it will all come to light at last. But how I do it is my secret. Trust me and be not afraid. I'll just mention I have a couple illustrations here down of this phenomenon. And by the way, babies don't bother me. I love love the fact that we got babies popping up like popcorn in our congregation. It's so wonderful. It's it's a praise. It's a praise to God, to to God's ears and to mine. So don't don't ever think that your baby's bothering me. But Martin Luther, the reformer, talked about God's mysterious providence, especially when we're suffering and seeing suffering and want to know the answers to the questions but don't have them. Um, He compared it to like a typeset. 
um, before the days of you know, computer printing, they would have typeset where the characters would be doubly reversed, upside down, but then also instead of left to right, right to left. But they would be perfectly placed by the typesetter, and then when they were you know, pressed onto the page, of course, you could read them perfectly. But looking at them when they were set, before the, anything was printed, it looked like gibberish. It looked like there was no plan at all. But actually, um, there was a perfect plan, and there was perfect appointment. And that's one of the things I think that comes across here in this um, sort of rhapsodic speech by God. And that's one of the things I want us to hold on to, is that God is good, he's trustworthy, he governs well, he's even gentle, very gentle with his creation. Um, and ultimately, we can trust him because of Christ, which we'll finish with. So diving in again, one point, God's power. Uh, the first point was even God's power and purpose. We're just going to talk about God's power. And then we're going to finish We're going to finish by looking at how he made his power most manifest through Christ. But let's just camp out on God's um, power for a little bit, um, really for the rest of our time. Y'all, what we need, the answer that we most need, I think, that we get from this text, the answer we most need is a vision of God himself. In other words, we don't need answers. We need God. We need to fix our eyes on him, and we need to trust him. That's one of the things that we can glean from, from God's response to Job here. If Job had needed an answer and needed reasons, I promise you God would have given them. But his response shows us that's not what Job needs in his suffering. That's not what we, what we need. And we see that in Job's response, which we'll talk about next week. First of all, we're looking at God's power. The first thing I want to show you is that God made everything good, okay? So look, if you look at verse um, 7, he talks about verse 7 of chapter 38, so Job 38, 7. He says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, and he doesn't stay there for long, but he's talking about his creating all things in the beginning. And it's just reminding us in case we've forgotten that, hey, the way things are for you now in this broken world, Job, that's not the way I created things. And the brokenness in your life, the suffering and the brokenness of all creation, the groaning like Paul calls it in Romans 8 of all things, Everything from storms to the pain in our own hearts to the pain in relationships to losing dear, dearly beloved loved ones. Um, all that comes because of us, because of our sin, because our forebears decided to disobey God and to make themselves kings and queens and to say, you know what, God, we can do better. And we're inheritors of that, and we live our lives that way until we repent and come to Christ. Um, and even, even alive in Christ, we still often live that way, don't we? I know I do. Every day. Chris and I were talking about that earlier. But God reminds Job, just in this little snippet here, your suffering and the suffering of the cosmos is not, it's not the way I made things. I made things good. Creation was singing when I made things. That's how good everything was. And I'm not the one that rebelled and screwed things up. Um, and yet I, and so it's not, I'm not beholden to make them better, but I I am and I will because of who I am. But the problem is yours, Job. The problem is ours. It's not God's, but God has chosen to enter into that problem. And we see that here. So God made everything good. Also, I um, want to look at the fact that God, um, he guides his creation well, and he's tender beyond measure. So um, if you look at 3811, um, so he governs his creation well, sorry, and he's powerful beyond measure. So let's look at his power. So 38.11, God's talking about the sea, and he says, Thus far shall you come and no farther to the ocean. 
and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Again, total control. You can come up to this inch, but no more. And when he allows the sea or a river or, or a stream to flood over, it's because he said, you can come to this point, but no farther. And so God is saying here that he has total control over his creation. Every single thing in creation has to obey his word. And I think this really, it reminds me, and it might be a, a sort of a callback, an illusion, a faint illusion back to the beginning of the book, where Job tells Satan at the beginning, before, excuse me, God tells Satan before Job's suffering starts in chapter 1 and 2, he says, okay, Satan, you can take Job to task, my righteous man, my, my man in whom I am well pleased. You can afflict him, but only so far. And he gives Job, he gives God, Satan, I'll get there. He gives Satan two limits. And Satan can do things up to that limit, but no farther. Satan needs God's permission. All creation, the sea, needs God's permission. Everything um, is ordered according to his, his word. If you look at 38.22, just sort of skipping through some of these verses, he says, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of the hail? Just thinking about the fact that clouds, just the precipitation, something that we don't often think about, that we just take for granted, um, looks like it's not going to rain anymore. I don't know if it did, but people brought their umbrellas in. It rains. It kind of, in a city, it's annoying. Farmers love it, unless there's too much of it. But we don't think too much about it. But even the weight, not just of snow or of ice, but of water, is astonishing. I remember reading about it once, um, a, little, a little bit here, on just the phenomenon of rain held by clouds. One inch of rain falling on one acre of ground. So one inch of rain on one acre is equal to about 27,154 gallons and weighs about 113 tons. That's just rain on one acre of land. An inch of snow falling evenly on an acre of ground is equivalent to about 2,715 gallons of water. So the fact that these diaphanous sort of wispy beautiful things that float along and look like different shapes in the sky can carry that kind of weight and then do what they do and release it and then have the, the cycle of water evaporation and then they're back. It's just absolutely astounding. Um, something little like that. Uh, I don't know. I know we have them somewhere, but um, talking about snow and just not just the wonder of clouds holding water, but also just of the wonder of snow itself. And I remember I did a, so looking at snowflakes, we might or might not have photos of them, but um, these are, if we do have them, these are photos of real snowflakes. All of you know what is true. Sometimes you think it's a myth, but every snowflake is vastly different. There's, there are no two snowflakes that are alike. And if you just picked up a, if you just made a, you know, a ball of snow to throw at somebody, you'd be holding thousands upon thousands of snowflakes in that ball. Every single snowflake is so intricate, so beautiful, and so very different. Um, and I just, I mean, literally, if you just type in snowflake, uh, you click Google Images and do snowflake, you know, photos and something else. Uh, most of these were taken from a guy's camera, like the kind of camera that Michael David would have, on a plate of glass, taped outside. Like, it's not a super fancy, I mean, he has great cameras, but it's a nice, like, Canon, just face down on a plate of glass in his backyard, taped onto this thing. And these are pictures. These aren't doctored up. These are just the pictures he took of the snow that fell. And so just the, the amazing, intricate care that God has with every single, thus far and no farther, the wonder of water in the clouds 
the beauty of each crystal of snow, things that we pass over so quickly. In verse 16 of chapter 38, he says to Job, have you walked in the recesses of the deep? I recently heard on, on a radio program, the deeps, we only know about 3% of the ocean currently. We only know 3% of what's there on the, on the, in the ocean, not just on the surface, but there total. Um, and that just amazed me. And we're, there's so much, I, to wrap your head around just the 3% that we know, I could never do it. There's so much life teeming there, but 97% of it, just of the ocean on the planet Earth, we don't know about. And God uses this tender language and says, have you walked, Job, in the recesses of the deep? In other words, the tacit flip side of that is, I have. I do. I didn't just create it like a divine watchmaker and back up. We're not deists here. The God of the Bible is a God that's intimately, he powerfully governs, and he intimately guides his creation. He's involved in it. He's not part of it, but he is there walking in it guiding it, as we'll look at in a little bit. He walks in the recesses of the deep, as it were. Absolutely astounding. Um, And that's not even to mention outer space. You could think of the deeps, even more of the deeps, way, way more of the deeps as the outer space. C.S. Lewis said um, he didn't like the term outer space because it kind of insinuates a sort of blackness and and an emptiness. But actually, the heavens, we know even more than Lewis did, way more. He didn't have the Hubble telescope um, of how un- black and dark space, outer space is. He called it, he liked the ancient designation, the heavens. The heavens. And when you read his space trilogy, you'll see he describes it in uh, Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra with these brilliant colors and phenomena. And that's really what space is. And we're, again, just learning the, 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 just the edge of what that really means. There's also, I've recently read, no such thing as space in space. So C.S. Lewis is more right than he knew. It looks, even where there aren't quasars and supernova um, and amazing crab nebula, it looks just like blackness, but it's actually matter. It's dark matter that we, it's not just emptiness. We're just learning about these things, and we really don't understand them at all. But every single bit of the universe that God spoke is crammed with his creation, even if we can't see it, even if it looks dark and black. And God walks through it. Uh, verse 32, again, I said we get to his guiding, not just his walking, but his guiding his creation. 38, 32, he talks about guiding the bear. He's talking about the stars. Do you, do you guide the bear? I do. What's the bear? The bear is probably Ursa Major, which um, Ursa, I suppose in Latin means bear, and there's a major and there's a minor. The minor is smaller as a constellation, but Ursa Major is one of the largest constellations in the sky. Um, And the stars just overwhelm me, their sheer size. God refers to this one, as, as well as Maseroth and some others, and says, um, I guide it. Sort of the picture there is like of you guiding a little child or a little pet or something along a leash. That's, that's like what God's saying I do to Ursa Major. A bit of the size of Ursa Major. It has seven brightest stars. One of them is Psi Ursi Majoris. Say that five times fast. It's a three-magnitude orange star. It's 225 times brighter than the sun, and it's located 147 years, light years, excuse me, distant from, from us. Uh, that's just one of the seven bright stars in this constellation. Ursa Major as a constellation is a remarkable constellation 
containing bo- it contains whole galaxies, Bode's galaxy, a dense spiral galaxy with an incredible 250 billion, with a B, suns, as well as the Cigar Galaxy, that's pretty cool, the Pinwheel Galaxy, and the Bard Spiral Galaxies of M108 and M109, both of which are 12 million light years away. The planetary Owl Nebula is also found in Ursa Major, 1,630 light years from the Earth. It, it boggles the mind. These are stars and galaxies that are embedded in this constellation, and God says, I lead it like a child. You going to talk back to me? You're going to question me? Do you know what I do? Do you have any idea, Job? And we hear Job twice say, no, you're right, I'm wrong. Verses 31 through 33, he says, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Um, We only discovered, the Pleiades, sorry, are another, you probably know, but another uh, constellation. The Native Americans, some of them use them as a an eye test for their young. Uh, there are seven stars in the constellation. They call them the seven sisters. And if you can see all seven without these things, if I could see all seven with these things, I'd still be doing well. If you could see all seven with the naked eye, you've got great, great vision. Usually I could only see five or six, especially in Houston. You can't really even see any. But the seven sisters or the Pleiades, we just discovered about 30 years ago, late 70s, that there is such a thing as a gravitationally bound star cluster. Guess what? The Pleiades is one of them. And here, possibly the oldest book in the Bible, older than the books of Moses, the first five that start our canon, God is telling us there are such a thing as bound star clusters. Can you bind them? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? I have and I can. I spoke and they were. And you know, when I... think about stars, one of the things that I love to think about is the fact that they're given this much play in the first creation account in the scriptures. In Genesis 1, I believe it's verse 16, um, literally all of the play that stars are given in the primary creation account in the Bible is this, two words in the Hebrew. Okay, in English it says, and he made the stars also. In Hebrew it's ve'et hakokovim. And the stars also. That's it. It's all it says. The rest of creation is about other things. It centers on the crowning jewel of man's creation, man and woman. And the rest of the Bible is about him getting us back, rescuing us. All we're given of this amazing panoply, this astounding display of God's power and beauty is two short words. No problem. God. And yet, look at the lengths that he has gone to to save us from death and from hell and from separation from him, to bring us back into relationship with him. That is an act of power and care beyond anything that he mentions here. And what it means for us, even in times of suffering, is that we can trust him. He loves us. He's shown us that constantly through his son, Jesus Christ. So, he guides his creation well. He's powerful in his providence, but he's also tender beyond measure. He's not just a good governor. He's a tender governor. Um, You look at 37.7. Again, it talks about the angels and stars singing when they are created. 
one, one thinks of, okay, I and Michelle are probably the only ones thinking of this right now. One thinks of, I think of, Michelle thinks of, Iluvatar, who in J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, in his creation account in another book called The Silmarillion, he sings. He doesn't just speak creation into being, but Tolkien's sort of read on Genesis 1 in a, in a fantastic kind of way with license is that God sings creation into being. And I think he partly probably took that interpretation from this text. Creation itself is singing because it's, so, it's done so well. It's such a beautiful pageant of color and of beauty and of, and of, and of sound and of sight. Um, and God, in a sense, is singing over his creation. And we're told that in Zephaniah 3, actually, that he sings over us. Um, so God made things good. There's a tenderness there. Um, 38, verse 8, the sea burst forth. We looked at the sea already, but it burst forth from the womb. This is really intimate. I mean, what's more intimate than the, a woman's womb? He uses that for the sea um, and for creation itself. It's an intimate bit of language here. Um, it reminds us that though God is separate from his creation, he's other, he's not part of creation. He's something else completely. Everything else is creation. He's not. He's the only necessary being. He's never not existed. He always will exist. And yet, um, he's connected himself to it. He cares about it. He walks in the recesses of the deep. He guides star clusters and constellations like little children. Um, 39, verse 39, 38, 39. He feeds the lion. He feeds birds, the raven. So the idea that, you know, we just look at birds getting their food as sort of almost a random kind of deal, or yeah, God's in control, but he just kind of wound things up. No, he says the way he looks at it and the way it really is happening somehow is that he's, he's feeding. When a bird gets its food, it's God feeding. When, an, when a lion gets its food, when we get our food, give us this day our daily bread, asking for it and knowing that when we receive it, when I receive food on the table, I'm receiving it from his hand. It's God feeding me tender, just like a mother feeding her child. That's tender language. Um, he observes the deer giving birth, 39 verse 1. It's like he's there. He is there. He sees and he cares even about deer giving birth. Yes, yes. Who else? Who else is responsible for that but God himself? 39 verse 19, he talks about the horse's mane clothing its neck. Tender language. Tender language. It, he made this mane for a reason, for beauty, and also, in a sense, he sees it as a piece of clothing over this beautiful animal's neck. Um, his personal touch with his creation is astonishing, not just his power. Um, and, you know, we think about, I think, I, I heard someone talking about creation once, and God made all things for his glory and to work a certain way and to do certain things. And all of creation, other than the fallen angels, the demons who, who rebelled against God, um, all of creation does exactly what God made it to do. Though it's broken and though it's groaning and waiting for the redemption of the sons of men and for us to be remade, it doesn't disobey God. It does from birds to lions to grass to flowers to trees to on and on and on. It does what it is made to do. And I heard someone talk about a pen. You know, creation's like a pen. You make a pen to write. And if it decides it wants to go dig a hole in the dirt, that's stupid. It's not made for that. That's what a shovel's for. It's going to be really bad at digging a hole. Just write. It's what I made you for. It's what you do really well. All creation does that except for us. What we were made for is total dependence on this great God, looking to him to provide for us, living in light of his will, doing his word, obeying him, and yet we choose every day to go our own way. We choose, because of our selfishness and brokenness and sin, we choose to make ourselves king. I, every morning I wake up as king. 
reminding my, having to remind myself that I'm not. I, I am on the throne every single morning when I wake up. I'm a, almost, I drift toward atheism over the night and think, this, you know, no, I'm God. It's me. It's the me, it's the me show. Everything, I'm the sun around which all planets revolve. I mean, that's, why? Why? Why does that happen? Because of sin. Because I'm broken and God came to make that right. But, oh, the price that he had to pay to do that. Something that he, that he chose to do far greater than creating the stars, than guiding all things in creation. Um, so he's a good governor. He's a gentle guide to his creation. And it's corruption is not our, his fault, it's ours. So we are the ones on trial, not he. And there's so much more here that I could talk about. I'm not. Um, it's just such a rich text, as Austin said. Um, but, you know, basically, I've, I've just looked at 38 and 39. 40 and 41 are pretty much all about this monster Leviathan that God describes. And in 41, I believe it is, verses 10 and 11, God basically comes to the point of this, talking about this huge, powerful beast. He says, you can't even come close to this thing without it destroying you. Um, and yet, I'm so, I made this thing. It's a plaything to me. I'm so much more powerful. And yet, you presume to know what I'm doing and to call the shots and to accuse me. If you can't even come close to Leviathan, why do you think you can approach me? And so, the crystallization of those two chapters, 40 and 41, um, I think really being along the lines of, um, sorry, I lost my place. Let me see if I can get there. Along the lines of, of basically God saying, look, no one can stand before me, chapter 41, verse 10. No, I don't owe anyone anything, 41, 11, verse A, 11A. And then I own everything, the next part of 41, 11. So no one can stand before me on their own merit. I don't owe anyone, and I own all things. Um, and yet, you have the presumption to think that you know things that I don't and to think that you know the way that I work. You don't even know the first bit about it. Uh, and, and as we've talked about, Job says, you're right, I don't. I repent in dust and ashes. I never should have opened my mouth. Um, when do we do this kind of thing? When do we question as Job has questioned? When do we need to hear this sort of response from God? Um, perhaps when I, when I lose things, when I lose a job, I tend to feel, in a sense, like Job did. When I lose a friendship, and it hurts me, and I don't understand, and I feel like it's God's fault. What are you doing, God? When I lose a spouse, divorce, or, or death, and I lose a child, and those are just a few things, um, and increasing severity, we can tend to ask questions like this. Um, and God doesn't shame us. He, he, in the end, validates Job. He doesn't shame us for asking these things. We ought to, but we ought also to remember what God comes to Job with at the end of this book and have a sense of humble awe and reverence and humility, knowing that he knows so much and he's working things out like that typeset. He's placing things perfectly, even if we can't see. Do you, do you understand the first thing about Ursa Major or the recesses of the deep? I, I, no. Well, then don't you think, since I, I spoke and they were that there could be a few things about me you don't understand, that I'm working all things for your good. Um, pain, of suff pain and suffering of any kind when I'm going through them. And also, and I think this hits most home with me, yes, I, I, I've experienced loss and will, and you have. Yes, I've experienced suffering, and so have you, and you will in life. Um, 
but also just a, like my, I, I've had a recent low burning anxiety that's sort of like this this thing underneath the surface of my life that's sort of my standard for the past week or so, and it comes and it goes, but it's an attitude of practical atheism um, that forms the baseline for my day, and it can very easily become my normal, and really it's me saying, forgetting all the things that Job is telling, that God is telling Job here in these last chapters, and just to remember these things that, hey, I don't, I can let go of those things. God's in control. He's good. He cares about me. He's a powerful and good governor, and he's gentle, and he guides the stars, and he guides lions, and, and he feeds ravens, and he walks in the recesses of the deep. How much more does he care about you and me? And how much more has he shown that through giving us himself through the person of his son, Jesus Christ? Um, I'm going to skip over most of this, but there are so many indications in this text. We'll talk about perhaps some of them next week as we finish off this series, but there's so many indications. This is not just Job, God coming to Job in the storm in severity to crush him. This isn't that at all, actually. When it says he comes in the whirlwind, I did some research on that word, and that word is storm, and it's pretty much used when God comes to people in a terrible sort of awe-inspiring judgment, wrath kind of way. It's frightening. Like, why does God come to Job in a storm? It's scary. It seems like he's going to crush Job, but that's actually not what happens at all. He comes really to engage, really to engage Job. If he wanted to crush him, he would just crush him. He would have been within his rights. He'd be within his rights to crush any of us. He came to engage Job, and he came as a covenant God. At the beginning of 38, he's called the Lord, and that's the covenant name that he's given to those that he wants to know him that he's given himself to and for. So he comes for relationship, and in the end, he vindicates Job. As I've said in chapter 42, we'll get to it next week. He twice in the space of two verses, I think it's verses 7 and 8 of chapter 42, Job, God says to the friends, Job has spoken of me what is right. So he's not coming to, he's not even, he's not coming to punish Job. He's coming to engage Job. He's coming to love Job. He's coming to set Job's eyes on him and to remind Job, I'm what you need. Trust me. And guys, the way that we can do that most is I've touched on, as you know, as I will finish with now, the way that we can trust God most, even as we see his power and his gentleness and his tenderness within creation, is through the person of Jesus Christ. It's not in his amazing, obvious displays of power. It's in the one that doesn't seem powerful at all, where he became, he, he divested himself, Philippians 2, ostensibly of all of the power that comes along with being God. Remaining God became a child. Weak enough for men to crucify, to misunderstand, to say, you're blaspheming when you call yourself God. We're going to crucify you because that's what our laws say to do because there's no way you're God. To be crucified so that he could die as a substitute in our place and to become the sin that we commit in himself to pay the price that we deserve so that could be finished. This is that God, the God hanging on the cross, the God that became a child for us, the God that lived in our place and was rejected by us. That's the same God that spoke and spun the galaxies and that guides them and leads them and walks in the recesses of the deep and feeds lions and created Leviathan. Same God. And we know ultimately in our suffering that he cares about us. Yes, because of what he's telling Job, but even more, because of what he did in his weakness. That's his ultimate display of power. I, I, I started with NPR. I'll finish with NPR. Um, I also listened to a, a podcast called Fresh Air. Any, any Fresh Air lovers? Yeah. Awesome. There's an even better one. I love Fresh Air. 
but I'm just going to tout it right now. Desert Island Discs. It's a BBC podcast. Check it out. If you like Fresh Air, you're going to love this one. So that's a little commercial for Desert Island Discs. But listen to Fresh Air, I think yesterday, yeah, yesterday, as I was doing some housework. And uh, Terry Gross was interviewing a lady named Julie Klausner, who never heard of her before. But she has a show where basically her show is about um, just criticizing uh, <laughs> just lambasting stars, popular people in pop, pop culture, and the, the whole show is just this cynical, funny, um, snarky show, apparently, about um, all that they, th- they think is wrong with the world and with pop culture. And so her job is basically to be rude to people that she kind of likes and wants their approval. And so it was funny, extra ironic and, and funny and apt when she said this, not as her character, but as a person. She said, I want to be loved, because Terry Gross was like, you lambast people, but you really, you're doing it, and you're, you created the show because you want them to like you. You want the world to like you. And she's like, let's not even get into that. That's what I talk about, my, talk about with my shrink. But she said, she said this really poignant line. She said, I want to be loved by everyone. This is a lady that lambasts everyone. But when the mask is off, why do I do it? Because I want to be loved by everyone, even though I'm always shocked when I'm loved by anyone. Isn't that amazing? It's so poignant and true. I want to be loved by, I want everyone to not only love me, but adore me. Adore me. Roses at my feet, you know? I just want that acclamation. I want that praise. I want to be liked and appreciated and known. But man, the other side of it is that I, I know deep down the problem here so, is so bad. I don't even whisper it to myself most often, but it's so bad that I'm honestly shocked even though I want to be loved by the world, I'm shocked when even one person loves me at all. And the fact is, <laughs> what more can God do than what he has done? That the God who made all things prizes you, has given everything, even his very self, even his very son, to win you, to call you back, to make you clean to make you his own, to make you his son or his daughter, as we sang about earlier, to give you the full inheritance of his own only son, Jesus Christ. Um, To be loved by God like that, to know that that's what Jesus shows us and guarantees us as we come to him by faith. There's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up, to come to Christ, to come to Christ. It's the way that God's provided for us to be with him, to, to know that that is God's expression of love for us, to know that I see the love of God in the heart of the Father in the face of Jesus Christ, in his arms outspread, nailed to that Roman cross for me. I, that is the heart of the Father for me. That's what he's done. That's the length that he's gone to, to to express, here's how much I love you. And that should shock us to the core. Um, and finish with this. You know, we were singing earlier, to the cross I cling, and I was sort of praying as we were singing, Lord, how do I cling to the cross? Like, how do I make that practically, how do I embrace that? How do I incarnate that? What does that look like in my life? How do I cling to the cross in life, not just sing about it? And I feel like looking at Job and looking at the suffering that we go through, remembering, as Paul says, and as we see constantly in the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord, remembering Job flips the paradigm. Jesus flips the paradigm that as a child of God, you are radically loved. You're not, you might be suffering because of something you've done, because of a sin, but even that, that's not punishment. You've been punished. Christ has been punished in your place. It's God loving you. The suffering and the pain in your life is God loving you and making you more like his precious son, Jesus. 
feeling that when we're going through pain and loss and suffering, remembering Job, remembering Jesus Christ, looking to him and remembering, oh, yes, this is God loving me well and loving me enough to make me like Jesus, and I already have all things, and I'm not trying to measure up. Christ has won all that for me. So I can rest in that, and I can let God do his good work, and I can stop questioning and just say, I, got, I want more of you, and I trust you, and I trust you because of what you've done for me in Jesus Christ. So that's God's power ultimately displayed, not in the stars, but in, in his son, Jesus Christ. So I pray that encourages. Let me pray, pray for us. Father, I, I just thank you um, that this was not a three-point sermon. Um, I thank you for this beautiful, weighty text. Um, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's all your breath. It's all perfect. It's all for us. It's all necessary. Um, I thank you that ultimately we know your word personally through, through Jesus Christ. It's not just a book. Your book takes us to a person, and that person takes us straight to your heart. Um, but I just pray if there's anyone here that is struggling with suffering and loss, um, that is struggling with their understanding of your goodness and your love, that they would that they would see clearly how much you love them through the person of Jesus Christ, that they would see that perhaps that they're suffering because you're drawing them to yourselves and that you're in charge and you're orchestrating that for their good. I pray just for full surrender for all of us to come to Christ, however we will, to come to Christ this morning and to just and to say more of you, Lord, I trust you. You're good. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.